Hello, everyone, and welcome back. In today's episode, we look at the internal revenue system and our taxes. Are they real? Or are they a slight pass down by faith? Find out more on this episode of Fact or Fiction. I'm sure just about everyone grew up with some sort of tradition around the holiday time, like how we light our Christmas trees and spend time with our family and open gifts. But have you ever asked yourself why you do this? My parents told me because their parents did it. That's why we do it, because it's tradition. It's like believing in Santa Claus. And if you're not good, or you're not a good child, you get a lump of coal. We all know how it works, but thinking about it now, it's kind of a little ridiculous. I know people don't need a specific day to appreciate each other, but think about how often you show your love to your loved ones, and that same kind of appreciation and attention outside of these traditions, like birthdays and holidays. What's crazy to think about is how this imaginary thing can shape morality. When I first thought about taxes, I got led down the same avenue. I didn't really understand why or how they worked, just that everyone had to pay them. And when I asked people, they kind of said the same thing and threw out the 16th Amendment. I knew if I posed an opposite or outside opinion, I would be questioned about my intentions and ridiculed. Then fall subject to the stigma of someone who doesn't want to play ball and pay their taxes which wasn't the case. I just wanted to know the hows and the whys. So before we really get into this, let's go over a brief history on taxes and the hows and whys. In the late 1700s, the United States government was supported by taxes on sugar, alcohol, tobacco, and property. Then, in the early 1800s, the cost of war brought on the nation's first sales tax. There was a tax on gold, jewelry, and silverware. But in 1817, Congress did away with all internal taxes, relying on tariffs from imported goods to provide funds for the government. Forty-five years later, the Act of 1862 was established by President Lincoln. This gave the commissioner the power to levy and collect taxes and the right to enforce tax laws through seizure of property, and income through prosecution. This didn't last long, though, as Congress eliminated the income tax a decade later, in 1872, focusing its taxation efforts on tobacco and alcohol. About 20 years later, in 1894, the income tax had a short-lived revival, but the United States Supreme Court decided that the income tax or labor tax was unconstitutional as it was not apportioned among the states as per the Constitution. Passed on July 2, 1909, and ratified later in February 3rd of 1913, the 16th Amendment allowed the government to levy an income tax without apportioning it among the states. In the United States Constitution, There are two forms of taxes, direct taxes 
and indirect taxes. Direct taxes are taxes that you cannot avoid, like the income tax. They are directly taken from your paycheck and must be apportioned, meaning that the tax must be distributed between all people equally. Indirect taxes are taxes that you only pay if you are using the service in which that tax would be applied. The tax also has to be uniform among the states, but an indirect tax is the excise tax on cigarettes, alcohol, and gasoline. If you use those things, you pay a tax for using them. And then there's the 16th Amendment, of course, which created a third form of taxation. So now there are direct apportioned taxes, indirect taxes, and a direct unapportioned tax. I spent a lot of time researching all of this, and I found a couple things that you might find interesting. In 1985, William J. Benson wrote a book called The Law That Never Was. In his book, he details how the 16th Amendment was never legally ratified, but was railroaded through, regardless of the votes needed, to lawfully ratify it or not. Mr. Benson is definitely noteworthy, and his book is an interesting look into the history of the 16th Amendment. But what I find more interesting is that on January 10th of 2008, the Federal District Court of Chicago issued a permanent injunction against Bill Benson on the grounds that by offering information demonstrating that the 16th Amendment was not legally ratified, he was promoting an abusive tax shelter. The court then refused to look at the government-certified documentary evidence, deciding instead that the facts necessary to prove his statements true were irrelevant. So basically, the government that we created to protect our rights can accuse us of lying and then prohibit us from presenting a defense in the court of law. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like freedom ringing to me. For the sake of this episode, I decided for us to just assume that the 16th Amendment was actually ratified and not get into all the details of Mr. Benson's work. But I will say this. There's a lot of very interesting information in Mr. Benson's work. And if you look into it and then do your own independent research, you'll find a lot of contradictions in what we believe to be true and the facts that are there. So now that we have laid the groundwork, I want everyone to really see the slight that is at work here. When we use language, we use it to communicate with each other, to share our thoughts, our ideas. When we use words, we use them specifically to ensure that we are expressing ourselves in accordance with our thoughts. Listen to this. Quote, In the interpretation of statutes levying taxes, it is the established rule not to extend their provisions by implication and beyond the clear import of the language used, or to enlarge their operations so as to embrace matters not specifically pointed out. In case of doubt, they are construed most strongly against the government and in favor of the citizen. Unquote. 
This is the Supreme Court case of Gould v. Gould in 1917, stating that the law must be strictly construed and that taxes cannot just be implied and extended beyond the language used in the law. What I am about to show you guys is not some conspiracy. That's not what this podcast is. I'm going to show you that there is no law. Let's take a look at Title 26 of the United States Code. This is the Internal Revenue Code. This is the title of the law that details all the different taxes that exist. I wanted to start off with Section 3101, which is the law that details the Social Security tax. This is a direct tax passed by President Roosevelt in 1935 as a way to provide a social safety net in the event of another economic downturn, like the Great Depression. Employees would pay into the fund and receive payments upon retiring equal to their payroll contributions. But this was set up as an insurance program rather than a welfare program. And as time progressed, amendments were made to support dependent and spousal benefits, and later disability, Medicare, and the ability for the government to tax benefits. Contrary to what everyone believes, this money was never put into a secure, untouchable trust fund. This was put into a bond. And as we discussed in our previous episode, bonds are just IOUs, which are no more than accounting entries in a computer. The federal government has borrowed, quote-unquote, all of that trust fund money to the tune of $3 trillion and spent it. So this is the point in the podcast where things start to get interesting. We're going to take a look at this specific section, 3101, in Title 26 of the Internal Revenue Code. This is the Old Age Survivors and Disability Insurance Tax. Quote, In addition to other taxes, there is hereby imposed on the income of every individual a tax equal to 6.2% of the wages, as defined in Section 3121A, received by the individual with respect to employment, as defined in Section 3121B. Well, let's look at Section 3121 and see how this is defined. For the purposes of this chapter, the term wages means all remuneration for employment, including the cash value of all remuneration, including benefits, paid in any medium other than cash. Well, let's look and see how employment is defined. For the purposes of this chapter, the term employment means any service of whatever nature performed a by an employee for the person employing him, irrespective of the citizenship or residence of either, within the United States. Okay, so an employee is a person who performs any service for the person employing him within the United States. Makes sense. They define employee as a traveling salesman, a home worker, 
a full-time life insurance salesman, or an agent driver or commission driver engaged in delivering food products. But listen to how they specifically define these last two. For the purposes of this chapter, the term employee means an officer of a corporation or any individual under the usual common law rules applicable in determining the employer-employee relationship has the status of an employee. Well, we define that an employee is a person who performs any service for the person employing him within the United States. So let's take a look at how the United States is specifically defined in this chapter of the tax law. State, United States, and citizen. For the purposes of this chapter, the term state includes the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Guam, and American Samoa. The term United States when used in a geographical sense, includes the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Guam, and American Samoa. So as you can see, in this chapter of the Internal Revenue Code, the individual liable for the Social Security tax is an employee irrespective of citizenship or residence of either within the United States. And the United States is strictly construed as the District of Colombia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, Guam, and American Samoa. Not New York, not California, not Texas, or the 50 states. Let's look at section 4612 and see who is liable for this tax. Section 4612 defines crude oil and domestic crude oil, and petroleum products within the United States. In general, the term United States means the 50 states, the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, any possession of the United States, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, and the trust territories of the Pacific Islands. As you can see, there are some taxes that are strictly construed and clearly detail the language of the law that the 50 states are responsible for the tax. Let's take a look at one more. 5001 talks about the tax on alcohol. In general, for this chapter, quote, there is hereby imposed on all distilled spirits produced in or imported into the United States a tax at the rate of $13.50 on each proof gallon and a proportionate tax at the like rate of all fractional parts of the proof gallon. Now, in this chapter, when you take a look at the persons liable for this tax, in section 5005, in general, quote, the distiller or importer of distilled spirits shall be liable for the taxes imposed thereon by section 5001. So, what does all this mean? Well, it means that there is something very interesting going on. That, where the IRS has accidentally been taxing Americans for decades now. 
Look at the tax law yourselves. You can take my word for it. But go look. Find the tax laws and see who is liable. See what is strictly construed and see how the language has been imported. The paradox starts when you assume liability for an income tax. Let's assume that you are liable by the clear import of the language used on these taxes. How are you supposed to pay them? As we discussed in the last episode, our currency is debt turned into money or monetized debt. And if the only way for you to pay your taxes is in this currency, then that would be impossible. How can the currency you're using be the money and the debt at the same time? In a transaction, if money is the debt and the debt is the money, then how can money be the asset that settles the debt? You see, there would be no way for you to pay these taxes. Why? Well, there has to be a gain. And you can't gain anything from these notes because they are not funded. There is no transfer of ownership. You see, you trade your labor for this currency, then you use it to buy something. It's a value-for-value transaction. You can't make a gain. I mean, think about it. We borrow money from our future selves and call it a deficit. But how do you go about spending a deficit? You see, this paper money we use, these taxes that we believe that we're liable for, cannot exist because the Federal Reserve note is a debt that is borrowed from our future selves and cannot be taxed because there is no gain in a value-to-value transaction. The labor you expended buys the goods or services. There is no gain or income. This currency is backed by nothing more than the collective belief systems of the world. I hope everyone can understand and see what's going on here. Think about this. We believe we should pay a tax that provides money to fund government spending, just like we believe the Social Security Trust funds our retirement. We have faith in this currency, so we continue to work for it. Just like we have faith in Santa Claus, so we continue to be good boys and girls. The show must go on, right? Listen to this quote. In the words of Woodrow Wilson, a year after passing the Federal Reserve Act, quote, I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is controlled by its system of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation, therefore, and all of our activities are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No longer a government by free opinion. No longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority. But a government by the opinion and duress 
of a small group of dominant men, unquote. I worry that people just don't care anymore, that they are too wrapped up in the things that are not as important as they think. I worry that people have lost themselves, that people are no longer having civil conversations with opposing views. I worry about censorship. When we can't gather together and have peaceful conversations. There are a lot of interesting things that have been going on for a long time. Passed down from generation to generation, we accept things as the way they are and go about our lives without ever knowing anything different. In the next episode, we will complete this three-part series by talking about the future of our money and the jump we are all about to make very soon. This is Factor Fiction.